Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Did did you have parents that used to say, you know, they had to walk um, two miles in the snow to school? No. You never had that? No, no. I That would be my grandparents. Okay. Well, my I... My grandparents I had to walk ten, a mile <laughs> in this 10 feet of snow in the <laughs> Upper Peninsula and Minnesota farm houses that they grew up in. <laughs> Well, I would like to say, I would like to say to you that I actually did just walk through a foot of snow up here at my mom's to get to where I actually have Wi-Fi in the barn where I'm sitting, but my daughter actually drove me over here. But I am in in snow-locked Hudson Valley. It is very, very, very snowy up here. So, Well, I just walked across a mile of metaphorical snow, which is also called my bedroom, to sit here in the closet. Wow. You. What does that mean? Metaf- metaphorical snow in your bedroom. Maybe maybe that's the second part of our show we're getting to. Yeah. No, yeah. I just threw yeah. it out there and it's like a puzzle that the listeners can fiddle on with their mind. That's What's right. metaphorical you snow? What does she mean? Is this just really a joke about how she just stood up from her bed and walked over to the closet? Maybe. Or is it a metaphor that like your your sex life is just a tundra? Whoa. I didn't even think about that. Now I'm sad. It's like I it's like I, I told truths I didn't even know. You didn't even know. I Did was you know telling? I'm sure our listeners, uh first of all, Sarah, what's the name of this podcast? Smoke 'em if you got them, babe. I am sure that our smoke 'em if you got them listeners are smart enough to know that the mind desires to fill in blanks. Like these are why like Books that are just like one, two, three, do see do or movies, it's, they're boring because your mind wants to fill in information. That's why my favorite fiction is are things like a Mary Gateskill or um, I'm actually started the new, um, um, what's his name? Ian McEwen book last night, uh, uh, Lessons. You know, you don't want, you don't want the artist, the writer, the person telling you everything. You want to work. So right now... Yeah, that's, that's that's what the, the, the listener or the reader wants to play with the creator. You know, you right. want to be in a sort of conversation. You know, your part of it is you're filling in blanks. And that's... This is the thing. You know, when you first... I remember when I first started writing, uh, you know, for a living, and, and I was writing fiction at the time, too, um, I hated what I thought of as interstitial writing. I don't know if that's what it's actually called, but like the extra sentence or the extra suit sentences that you felt that you needed to join one idea to the next. And that's because yeah. you're young and you don't understand yet that no, not actually it, it kills it, but you also don't want that because the reader you want to leave my, my editor, my favorite editor, um, at the LA Weekly, Janet Duckworth used to say, the story is all in the air between the lines. And that's, um, that's, why we're going to let the listeners figure out for themselves what you meant by the um, metaphorical. Metaphorical snow. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, that's such a good line, whatever your your editor yep. said. But I struggle with that because I, I work in memoir. And so a lot of times if you leave too much space around the line or air around the, the lines, people don't really know what you're talking about. Because memoir is really about summoning the internal experience that you have. And so you have to, like, sometimes I'll write scenes that would be interesting maybe if they were in fiction, but if I don't tell the, like, tip my hand enough, 
the reader is like, what, why am I even hearing this? You lost, you You know, where is this going? And so like, I often struggle, like, what do I need to tell? Like, when do I need to tip my hand about what metaphorical snow means? And when do I leave it a mystery that's fun to untangle? That's a trick. It's not always an easy decision. No, because you also have to, I remember when I wrote the, um, the modern love piece for uh, the Times about Tim and his dad. And there was a lot, there was a lot of information in here. And I kind of needed all the information. I needed the beats to tell the story. But I still think that even you, you can use these sort of like short sentences to do that. But there's still like these bits of air in between. Like you want, we've talked a couple of times about novels that we loved, that we felt we were running alongside. I felt that way with uh, The Corrections. It was, I I just felt like I was running next to Franzen as he was telling this story. But there was enough, there was enough air there that, that he allowed. I think it's, I think it's more generous not to tell the reader sometimes. I mean, like, I just, I, I'm going to agree. I'm going to go back to my decision that this is a balance because I think there are books that are extremely elliptical mm-hmm. like uh, Rachel Cusk writes these amazing mm-hmm. books that are extremely elliptical and I I admire them without liking them mm-hmm. there's not enough there's not enough story Franzen is actually a master of storytelling and so you know he works on the sentence level but he's a great storyteller and he does he he he, he doesn't withhold no, and I think also that sort those of, books are five hundred pages. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. I, um, I, oh, um, here's something funny. I had the new uh, the uh, lessons out yesterday, and I was like, "How long is this book?" Just like looking at it in my hands, I was like, "It's going to be four hundred thirty pages." Just like boink, it was four hundred thirty-one. It's like you read so many books, you start to understand yeah. exactly how long this is. But I think also, um, when you're overly elliptical, or a writer is overly elliptical, it's also sometimes can be a sign of maybe maybe insecurity like you want to keep things mysterious it's like no that's not well, that? don't do that to your reader <laughs> like, yeah I remember when I was in college and I was at the time I wanted to be a playwright and I was reading all these like Harold Pinter and a lot of these like uh, postmodern existential playwrights that would have it would everything would be subtext and I would turn in these pages where people were just not saying anything to each other. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, I can write this so fast. And yeah. my instructor was like, it seems like these characters don't want to talk to each other. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's the point. And if you had challenged me on that, I would have been like, she'd been like, what do they want to say? I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. It just sounds really interesting when like it, to me, it was such a, like that was such a smoke screen. It's a, it's For an not having any draw. Like I had nothing to say. There you go. It's, it's, it's just all, you know, sometimes you just have to write. You have to learn to write. You have to teach yourself to write. And there's all going to be all these phases where you do things badly. And so that's fine. But, you know, talking about saying something in a way that can be sort of compact and pack a big punch mm. reminds me of when Twitter first came around, right? I, I joined Twitter in 2009. Do you remember? Same. When you same. Okay. So, you know, we were all, I don't actually remember the year it started. Do you? Do you remember? When Seven, it I think. Seven. Maybe but eight. I, I think 
as far as I remember, if I look at, and I, I don't make a practice of it, but if I look at like uh, my friends' profiles on Twitter, most of them will have joined in 2009, right about the same month or two. It's, you know, May or July. We all sort of like, all of a sudden it became a place you wanted to be. And I remember, I wasn't it at the beginning? Now it's 280 characters. Didn't it start out half of that? Didn't it start out at one, 140? And I remember thinking like, how the hell do you do this? Like, you really, yeah. it was like being a little kid in kindergarten. Like, I've got 74 different colored blocks in front of me. How do I, how do I make any of this make sense? Um, but, you know, then I, I grew to kind of absolutely love the form. I loved the form as a writer because it wasn't just about like, I wasn't out there like, I want my ideas to be read by everybody. I was just so fascinated with the creation. And then, you know, as the years went by, like, like then I actually spent a long time not on Twitter at all, like for the, yeah, uh, I don't know, like 2011 to 2016 or something. I really wasn't there that often. But then when you get there and you realize it was such a fascinating form, I'm not talking about, you know, what's happened and we're going to talk about Twitter, but I, I found it to be just in terms of aesthetics and potency, really, really sexy and dynamic. Hmm. Yeah, my experience was so different than that. Well, let's hear about it, lady. Well, I joined Twitter at the same year, but a, a year before I had been out for drinks with a, two friends of mine that are very connected in Silicon Valley. And they know all the, like, Ev Williams, who invented Blogger, and they they were good friends with, you know, all these people. And, um, and I'm pretty sure Ev was part of the original Twitter team along with Jack Dorsey. And so they come to this bar and they're like, there's this new thing and you can tweet and it's like status updates for Facebook, but that's all it is. And I was like, what the hell? Why would you ever want to do that? I was like, what do you say? And they were like, well, you just tell them like, here I am at the bar with Sarah Heppola. And I was like, that's so stupid. It's so dumb. <laughs> and I remember we had to join for Salon and then we had to live tweet events and I would get tasked with live tweeting like, the Oscars or something. And I didn't know how it worked and I didn't really understand. And then some other people would be doing it and they'd be funnier and faster. And I just sit there being like, her hat is weird. Send, you know, like, and then just feeling like such total, like just d failure. Like I could, I could, it's like when somebody looks at you and they're like, be funny. And you're like, I don't, I've never known a joke in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so scared right now. And um, and it was awful. And then, uh, it's also, I think the rules stuff really bugged me. It was like being in school and you had to write a haiku and it was like, but why, but why, why yeah. 14 yeah. syllables yeah. on, I don't want four. I want 18 syllables. Like mm -hmm. I'm such mm -hmm. a creature of individual choice and expression that it just like, it just felt 140 characters. And then I think I pretty quickly saw as it tilted from as it tilted from what status updates to kind of call out culture. Oh, yeah. I just did not find my place in that. It felt like Twitter was where conversation went to die and judgment went to be reborn as your oh. autocrat. And I, I, I everything I wanted to say, you know, it was like, I just felt, I felt, I, I, I stood there like on the edge of a, every conversation or the edge of every tweet, just going like, but, 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 you know, and, and, and then people like me got called, but what about us? You know, like, like there was an 
actual slur for people like me that wanted to introduce some other alternate agreement um, argument into the conversation. So I just I just retracted entirely. And there was a long time many years where my Twitter feed just looks like it was basically done by a PR bot. It's just me going like appearing at this thing link wrote a story on X link. You know, it's, it's so, I found it, I found it scary and crushing and also like everybody else was having fun and I wasn't and I may probably because I was old and didn't have anything to say. So I totally retreated from it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't really get that involved in, in Twitter until right before my Atlantic month, Atlantic story, which is the reason why we met. Right. That's right. Cause I wrote a, a story called the things I'm afraid to write about. And I knew I was going to get dragged on Twitter. And I wanted to kind of be familiar with the form where I was taking a beating. And so I made a point of tweeting every day and and I thought, oh, this is fun. I think I get this. Like people are so funny. I mean, that's the thing that really amazes me about Twitter is the the economy of comedy that's on it. Oh, are you talking about Ben and the, no, I'm not. Because actually, this is something between us. Uh, I don't actually think Ben Dreyfus is that funny. Are we okay. ready to fight? Uh, you and me? Yeah. Girl, always. Girl, fight. Um, let me take no, out my ears. Just, let me I take out my ears. Like, I, I don't understand why you and the Fifth Column guys think he's so funny. And, and I think he's interesting, but I don't think he's that funny. But what I was talking about was um, the you know, the economy of gifs or gifs and memes and, you know, all this sort of like shared language that is like music, you start to hear a little bit with a more fine-tuned ear the more you're on that site, right? Because it's this patois of definitely TFW and RN and, you know, TLDR. These are like the most mundane acronyms, but you know, you, you, for a while, it just looks like what in the hell is everybody talking about? And everybody's going at this incredibly fast clip. And I'm going so slow. I'm so analog in this digital world. So it took me a while, but I started to really get the hang of it. I thought it was really fun. Then I uh, got in trouble with some friends because I said some salty things to them and they were like, that hurt my feelings. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a dick now. Wait, you, um, said, you said salty things on Twitter or to them personally? Yeah, like a okay. friend of mine posted something about, um, what did it say? It was like, what's the medical diagnosis for when you can't keep checking your in- inbox all day long? And I wrote boredom. Hmm. That's okay. And he was like, no, I'm actually, uh, you know, I think there's something wrong with me. And I said something salty. Like I, I refused to acknowledge this as an actual diagnosis. And I kept making kind of snide jokes. And then it turned out he was really hurt by this. And he let me know, which I appreciated. And I was like, oh, I might be going a little too fast on Twitter, you know, because you start just like shooting, you know, like laser beams out of your fingers. You're just like, pew, 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 pew. And you're not really paying attention to like, maybe not everybody's joking around like you are. I think for sure, 
it's obviously it's an ecosystem that is, you know, we've probably got some listeners here that are like, oh my God, are they really talking about Twitter again? And we apologize, but the fact is we're both journalists and this is where the, you know, as Sarah has said many times, we used to go to the bar. Uh, I still go to the bar. I think Sarah still goes to bars too, to a certain extent. And um, this is where you go, but it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, obviously some people are shooting the laser beams and being snarky, but it really is, if you want it to be, can be just the most flexible medium. I mean, you can you can use your 280 characters. You can link a video. You can create a video. You can just put a funny picture. You can put a picture that clashes with what you're saying. You can reference something. You yeah. can put... I actually, I'll, I'll tell you, it might have been the most... I have no idea. Um, sorry, got to met, mention Matt Welch in every uh, episode. He's been digging into his uh, Twitter analytics for actually for a reason and we'll we'll get there a little later in the episode um but i you know if you have a tweet that really really takes off you know that because you can see the sort of numbers clocking and how many people have like linked it and um when my dad died in um in um february of 2020 i sang a little tiny when i was 11 years old my dad made me stand in the dining room of the apartment my mother had just kicked him out of and he put on frank sinatra and he made me learn the words to my way we i stood there like 11 times until i knew all the words to my way and when he had been really sick uh well he was wasn't much sick he was like kind of leaving he was getting ready to to depart or this mortal coil whatever that that phrase is and um i sang him a little bit of that song and i wrote a very short little series of tweets with my dad. And I included in it just a very short clip, clip of me singing that song. It wasn't a big deal. Well, it, it kind of, I guess it was a big deal because yeah, everybody, big deal. everybody, if we're fortunate, we've had parents, we've had loss. I was not being maudlin. I was being hopefully like, I was telling a small story about my dad because that's all we do, right? I, I've said this quote before, and I, I, if I, if one of my listeners can find out where I read this quote, I would love it because I've, I've, I've repeated it like sixty times. That people will go, will voluntarily go longer without food than they will without hearing or telling stories. So you tell a story very quickly, and this was the the thousands and tens of thousands of people. Um, um, took this along with them. And they were saying things like, you know, Richard Rommelman, a great man. These people have never met my father, right. but it didn't right. matter because they wanted to be just for a moment and not in a way that was like corny, didn't seem to me at all to be part of something. That is, I mean, this is, this is beautiful. Of course we have, you know, the opposite things. We just have like little snarky things and people being nasty. But for me, well, I didn't know, I didn't know where that story was going. And so, you know, on Twitter, you really have two very intense streams. And one is, I love this. This is beautiful. How sweet, heart, heart, heart. And the other is your human garbage. This, yeah. the end is close we're fucked, et cetera, et cetera. And so it can be a tricky thing to place fragile things on, things that are close to your heart. I tend to not do that because I don't know what number you're going to pull. I What stream you're going to wind up in. Yeah. And you know, as I've, 
I've also said before, you know, there are some people, they can be so angry at you or just angry in general. Maybe they don't even know you and you can bring them a warm basket of puppies and they're going to attack you, right? That That's going to happen. But then also, how are you going to organize your life around the the fact that someone might do that? You know, I'm obviously don't talk okay, about it. I'm not going to organize my life around it, but I'm not no, going to no, sign no, no, up no. for it. No, no, no. Of course. But what I'm saying is like, you make your choices. Like, what are you going to talk about on Twitter? And, you know, sometimes you are going to take a chance. I mean, I, I posted something very, very short yesterday about the fact that I'd gone up the hill and talked to my, my late father and my late ex. And <laughs> the little third part of it was like, you know, moral of the story, talk to your dad. And almost everybody that saw that tweet were like, whoa, look at that typo. I didn't even know what they were talking about. It was because they thought I meant to write, talk to your dad. It's like, you don't understand um, like how people are going to glean what you're saying. Okay, yeah. I, there's, there's no yeah. point. Anyway, I happen to love Twitter. Um, I, I, through all of its permutations, through all of the anger, have I been dragged on Twitter? Of course I have been, um, but not in a while because I've gotten kind of a little savvier about what to do there. Um, I like it. And I have been very interested, as have you, with what's been going on there um, for the past, well, I don't know how, I mean, well, for the past forever, but uh, certainly um, since Musk bought it, uh, and certainly since we've been having some, we're not calling them tranche, uh, dumps anymore, Sarah, are we? What are we calling them? We call them tranches. Yes, tranches. Tran- tranches. Trench, trench. Um, okay, and- um, I have been having a lot of fun on Twitter. I feel like I've turned a corner with it. And it's really interesting to me that I've started to finally enjoy the hell out of Twitter at the time that a lot of my colleagues are getting the hell out. And, you know, oh, wait, you really? Say- have they? Have you really had people leave? Because yeah. I, I read yeah, a- No, I, I definitely have colleagues that have bounced wow. off Twitter. Yeah, 100%. And they're not, okay, so I read a, I can't remember what it was last week, so I'm saying like, oh, all these people announced, but in fact, something like 1.8% of people had actually left, which is actually a pretty big number, but... It's do hard you to think, track, though. I mean, look, yeah, you know, you could keep your, you, if I were leaving Twitter, I would say, bye everyone, and then I would keep my account, because I might change my mind, or I might want to lurk. And so how you start a different account, you can start an account under a different name that people don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just I think it's a tiny bit unquantifiable, but I can tell you that that one point eight percentage is going to be a particularly high among uh, journalists who uh, and writers who are a large part of my circle and people that I follow or that follow me. And how do you know they left? Well, uh, for uh, one of my friends, I was looking for because she, uh, I don't know if I should talk about this. No, no, no. But you don't know names. Of well, course, no, but. I mean, like she got a story that she wrote for me at Salon. No, a story that she wrote at Salon got dragged into this whole Yoel Roth and Elon Musk fracas. Okay. And because I don't know if you know, you saw the side story about Elon Musk kind of throwing shade at Yoel Roth, who was the former head of trust and safety, saying that he was like a pedophile. Yes, that was okay. We're we're gonna get which was super upsetting and obnoxious. And like, what? And why? And also, like, twisting what he had written in order to make it look that that was that was bad. Well, and and so what? uh, This this was actually the moment when. I'd been having a lot of fun in this new chaotic Twitter and it's like I started to feel like maybe the car was out of control 
and mm-hmm. the guy was drunk behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elon Musk had, you know, look, these Twitter tranches, these long threads of the Twitter files are bringing up a lot of complicated backstory around the people that made the decisions at Twitter. I don't know how you would feel if a bunch of your work correspondents got dumped online. I would probably feel pretty embarrassed. Like there's some shit I maybe didn't say as well as I would have liked. Yoel Roth doesn't come off looking great in these tweets. I don't know him. I think he's come to represent a certain morally correct left-leaning side of the debate to a lot of people. He wrote his, he somehow wrote his master's thesis or something like that on Grindr, the gay dating app, which I don't understand what that thesis was about, but whatever. He did. Somebody posted screenshots from it. It seems to be acknowledging that young people under 18 are on Grindr. And so why don't we acknowledge that instead of pretending like it's not true and make either the app safer for 18-year-olds or give them something else? It's a harm reduction approach to youth on an adult app for hookups. Anyway, it was completely reasonable. Um, this got posted as Yoel Roth is a pedophile. And who, do you remember who like unearthed that? No, I don't. But, you know, Elon Musk has been has been cozying up to some of these alt-right figures that I know from my salon days to be fixated on pedophilia because they one of them, one of the guys that has I I saw I see him in Musk's little inner Twitter circle, by which I mean like they they message each other quite a bit. This guy is in like a Twitter spaces group that I went to where Elon Musk was talking. Do you want to I'd say his name or, say, or do you not care? It's fine. Okay, fine. I'd fine. prefer not to say his name. He used to work at Breitbart. And um, he targeted a story that I wrote. I'm sorry, that I edited for the personal salon section. The personal essay section of salon. Um <laughs> That was by, I mean, it was probably one of the most controversial pieces that I wrote, that I, I did it again, that I edited. Um, it was by a guy who had pedophilic tendencies, mm. but was explaining why he wasn't a monster. He didn't ever act on them in real life. There was, there is a very controversial group that kind of creates AI style. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Just, no, I know it's so dark. It's, it's so, really no, no, dark. No, it's so hard. It's one of these things it's, that you just have to say like there, but for the grace of God, because which is how I operate, but is not how the no, world of operates. Not, of course not. Of course and, not. It's burnum, burnum, burnum. Like, like this, like by the time I was ending my tenure at the personal essay section, I was getting wiser. I made a lot of stupid mistakes early on and I was getting wiser about not putting people into that gladiator arena unless they were you they were ready for it and so with this guy like I got on the phone I wanted to make sure he was sane he was I got his mom on the phone hi yeah yeah was he and I okay. said okay go ahead 
because I needed her to confirm that this story was true because it was, you know, I didn't have, I needed some verification. I needed, it's too easy for people to just make up stories. And I needed someone to tell me this stuff was true. And she said, yes, he was. And I said, how do you feel about him putting this out? He did it under his own name. And she sounded like she was going to cry. And she said, I'm scared for him. And I said, I know I am too. And it was a really intense moment. And he's doing this for 150 bucks. You know, this is not a big money payout. He wanted to do this because whatever reasons, what he told me was that he felt like the story was untold. He wanted to tell it. I was the good editor for, I was a good editor for this. I also wanted that as well. This story went out. This story was huge. Then Breitbart at some point picked it up and started targeting our advertisers saying, um, targeting this guy starting to say that we were, you know, this is how crazy liberals are. They're, they're now saying pedophilia is normal. They're now saying that, you know, I will tell you, Jesse Single, who is uh, one half of Blocked and Reported now, but at the time was a writer on the New York, Mag- on New York Magazine, and I didn't know him from Adam, wrote a piece defending the Salon story at the time when, you know, look, this this campaign had put pedophilia <laughs> like I mean and and liberals in a sentence and everybody was eating it up, you know? And so anyway, um the guy that kinda was behind that campaign, in addition to Milo Yiannopoulos, who was also part of it, um, you know, I have a I have I have reasons to trust not to believe he's in good faith. I mean, why not? If you're concerned about that, why not contact me? Why not talk to the person? Like, why not make any kind of good faith effort to have a conversation about this? Why reach out to our advertisers and tell them that they are backing pedophiles? We had to take the story down. I can't link it in the show notes. We had to take it down. Well, I think the answer to why um, they would do that is because they... I mean, obviously, because they felt it will get mileage for themselves personally and for their their site. But I think when we go, when we get under the nub, so to speak, it's because they um, want identity. And the way they figure that they'll get identity is to be the sort of defender, I'm putting these in air quotes, you know, defender of all things good. Um, If they would examine that for one second, they would realize that, being the defender of all things good means trying to, um, you know, have kindness and gentleness and an open mind. Um, it's not about bringing your message at the tip of a spear, which yeah. I think all people on all sides sometimes do when they tell themselves they're right. They're like, well, you know, the way I'm going to get this across most quickly is to plunge this burning spear into my enemy. And then not only am I going to maybe defeat them, which is not, I don't think that's actually how that works. Um, but I'm going to look like a hero. And um, I, I find that to be, um, I, I don't really respect that expediency um, at all. And I think that is an unbelievably difficult story. I kind of remember this, um, what you're talking about this happening. Yeah. Um and, yeah, and and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this. I also no. want to say that um, the other thing that might be under the surface there, and I never want to forget it, is that I don't know these individuals' experience 
with this subject matter. I don't know their personal story. I am neither casting suspicion um, nor assuming anything, but I know that a lot of people that build campaigns of social justice have personal backstories they're trying to correct. They're trying to fix or heal. So that is the more generous interpretation that I could give to these individuals. My point is that this information on Yoel Roth seemed to have come from that guy as well. Okay. Uh, before um, we continue it, on to this, I just want to mention a little a little tasty morsel for our, our listeners. So I, when I was in uh, Israel last month, uh, another person, and, and he's talked about this on his site, uh, Jesse Single was there. I actually traveled with Jesse and someone else and we, we before the rest of the crew got there. Um, but I just want to say about Jesse Single, who I adore, who is quite tall and who eats so much food. My, my sub job while we were in Israel was just making sure that, that Jesse had enough to eat. <laughs> well, I've never met Jesse, but I'm short and I eat so much food. So maybe we will have <laughs> you guys, Um so so this this Elon Musk gets a hold of this Yoel Roth dissertation. I said thesis, it might be a dissertation. Okay. I don't freaking know. And then somebody had also dug up an old tweet from like 2013 where he's linking to a salon story. God, salon. Oh. I mean, oh. you know, I spent seven years there, right? And it's like, it it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There's a lot of different things that were there. But um, it was by one of my good friends uh, and a writer that I worked with really closely. She was on the sex beat at the time named Tracy Clark Flory. And the story is something like, is it ever okay for a high schooler to date his teacher? It has one of those clickbait headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Which we were in the business of hardcore yeah. in those years. And because we were in like traffic was a blood sport. You know, you got traffic yeah. reports that sh showed everyone's ranking. You had chart beat that showed like the real time traffic of every story. You could tell when a store, when a, when a headline wasn't working and when it was and how you had to push. And it was, you know, it was all sorts of that. But, um, you know, Tracy had written that. It's it's she's a very reasonable writer. The story turns out to be about like an 18-year-old student. But you know, it's also basically saying like like anyway, I, I don't want to get into like whether this, you know, the the merits of the story. The point is that um you know, Elon tweeted this out like, you know, look at this pedophile. Like cuz he Yoel Roth had just tweeted a link to this story that asks this question. This is like seven degrees of debate malpractice or three. When but I, like, you know, to, to assume that the posting the link is an endorsement, to assume that the the headline, you know, is an expression of somebody's of even what the story is about, to not read the story, to not appreciate that the story is much more nuanced than that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason I know that some of my friends left Twitter was because I saw that and went, oh shit, how's my friend Tracy doing? Got it. And I reached out to her and she's like, yeah, I'm not on Twitter. I saw, I, you know, I left, I've gone over, you know. And she's not the only one. I have other friends. I have a friend who... Uh if I mentioned this person's name, many people would know who it is. I'm not going to obviously say, um, but this person Joe told Rogan. me. It's always Joe Rogan. 
It's Joe Rogan. Look, Joe and I have a little thing. I don't want to. I don't want to be too public about it. He's asked me to be, you know, a little keep it a little undercover. <laughs> it's okay, Joe. I'm not going to give away big secrets. Um, but this person told me that they had left Twitter a couple of years ago, uh, and then, then they told me recently. Yeah, I, I have an account. I keep an eye on everybody, but not under this person's own name. Just you know, wants to be there. Wants to be part understand what's going on, but just watches. I am sure there are many people um, that have done that, though I bet there are more people that performatively said they were leaving and then just never left and hope people don't notice. Right. But I, I wanted to mention something about um, about Musk. Um, I'm, I'm not a giant fan of Tom Nichols, who is now over at the Atlantic, but they have a piece up yesterday, which I sent to you, um, last night, which we will, uh, post the links to. Guys, if you don't know that we're, we have pretty good show notes, you should know because they're pretty fun. There's a lot of videos and, and hopefully you can go down some fun rabbit holes. But he mentioned something about what's must to me, like that particular Yoel, uh, Roth tweet and then a lot of others, some of which I think we'll talk about, seem to me to be shooting from the hip or shooting, or another way to put it would be, I'm going to find what's the most potent bullet in my gun right now and shoot it without really thinking things through. And Nichols had, I thought, had a pretty good tweet in his piece yesterday. And he wrote, I think Musk lost his cool because for more than a month, he's been in way over his head with an impulsive purchase. His fortunes are plunging and he got booed by a crowd of thousands of people at a Dave Chappelle performance, which for a guy like Musk is probably an unforgivable injury from what should be an adoring public. Now, this could be, this could be, you know, Nichols projecting, but I thought there was a little bit of truth in there to me because you know, sometimes when people are hurt or when they don't understand what's going on, they like go into the corner and like kind of like lick their wounds and try to figure what's going on. Now, Musk could do that, but that's obviously not his personality. You're instead going to kind of go on the attack, whether you're being wise about those attacks or not. I do not think that Yoel Roth tweet was wise. Do I think working with Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and other people in kind of Barry Weiss's house over at the New Free Press, was that wise? I, I think so. It seems to be an interesting way to describe what's been going on behind the curtain at Twitter, some of which will be fascinating, some of which won't be. Um, I think we've had different, different, uh, you and I have, I've had opinions about the tranches that have come out. I think the, was it the fifth or sixth that came out last night from Taibi talking, talking about how, I mean, to me, this was actually interesting. Last night's or at 4 p.m. Eastern time, uh, it was about how cozy, um, the FBI and other, um, government entities have gotten with Twitter over the years, which I think sort of parallels, uh, let's say Yoel Roth's sort of feeling like, um, you know, I have no idea whether when this started, when, you know, the FBI started going to Twitter and saying, listen, there are a few people we want you to keep an eye on some of their tweets, and maybe we want to get these, some of these down, if they felt impinged upon, if they felt important. But it it seems pretty clear that as, you know, the years have gone on, it's become more and more normalized. And I wonder for an executive of Twitter, if you start feeling like you are, um, like you're a very important person now to sort of have this power over uh, this medium that you've told yourself you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing 
by allowing, you know, the FBI to come in and say, we're not crazy about some of these tweets. And we're not talking about like, I want to go mass murder people, or at least not the ones that Taibbi cited. It's more like a stupid joke. Um, how do you think the executives at Twitter, how, how, I mean, we saw some of them push back. Some of them are like, guys, this is, this is allowing the government to come in and, and start to, and start to, um, uh, dictate and what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, outlaw starting to, uh, try to control the message in ways that you shouldn't if you're, if you as a social media platform are saying, no, we're not doing this. Um, anyway, I think that, I think that Musk has been overshooting. And I wonder, I wonder, you sent me something this morning, you and Stephen Bolniets. If there can be oh, a court, Elon a court. Musk is going to be on Lex Friedman's show. Lex Friedman is a is a YouTube interviewer that I really like, and Stephen uh, introduced me to him. He's one of our listeners. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Um, and Lex is he's like from the tech world, but he has this like radical compassion and empathy that I generally associate with women. Sorry, stereotype. Very Oprah. So it's an interesting combination of Oprah and like rational tech bro mind. He's he's a he's a cool figure. He's very, very his interviews have become very, very popular. He's um, actually trying to help, it seems to me, he's trying to help Musk course correct. Yes, I think that's okay. right. So I have some thoughts on Elon Musk. Can yeah. I share them? Please. Okay. First of all, you said important, and I want to thank you for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Secondly, you know, <clears throat> Elon Musk, I think, is learning some difficult lessons in how easy it is to armchair quarterback, how easy it is to know how to fix something when it's not yours. Mm, mm. And oh. <laughs> came into Twitter, I think, uh, sincerely, well, like he didn't want to buy it, but then when he did, he was like, okay, I'm going to change the world. We're going to save civilization. I think the Twitter files journalistic uh, experiment has been both valuable and I think it's also an attempted burn. I mean, you know, like like it's it's hard not to look at that list of names and see that all of them are incentivized to kind of poke their eye into mainstream media and what they've missed and what they haven't covered and the old guard, right? But I have a lot of respect for what Barry uh Weiss, Matt Taibbi, and Michael Schellenberg have done. Uh, I do not, I, nor do I think I even really should sit here and tell you how everyone at Twitter went wrong because I have no idea what I did, what I would have done in their situation. And I can't tell you how many mistakes I made at Salon. Um, so that's not as interesting to me. Um, I do think that Elon tweeting out that stuff about Yoel Roth being a supposed pedophile or like, or like basically he didn't say that he just kind of threw shade at him at a time when Yoel Roth was, was experiencing so much heat that he had to leave his home. I think that is shitty. And I also think karma is a bitch because a couple days later, what happened? Elon Musk was followed by somebody in a car 
that he believed was trying to assassinate him. Well, I actually don't know if Elon was in the car. He wasn't in the car. He told us that his kid was in the car. I have a question. And, and forgive me because I've, I've had a kind of crazy couple of days and haven't paid attention to this particular part of the story. But I did see the video where someone with a camera or a phone, obviously, probably um, goes up to the window of a car where there is someone driving the car and he's wearing sort of like a you know face mask. Um, and this is the car that has apparently been following Elon Musk's baby. I, someone obviously was driving the car. I don't know who. Uh, unless maybe a self-driving car. Maybe it was just the baby right in the car. Yeah. Um, but the per- camera goes up and like says something like, what are you doing? The guy kind of pulls down his mask and shows some of his face, which I found to be, as someone who's been around the crowd of black masked people many, many times, it's not usually what you do. You usually yeah. cover your face. And then had the time to walk around to the front of the car and photograph the license plate. Did I see something that it's like, this actually wasn't a real thing? Am I wrong yeah, about that? It, 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 it went, put off alarm bells for me too. Um, I, you know, I, 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 all I know is that, um, you know, what Elon puts on Twitter is a new rule that says doxing anyone is going to result in immediate suspension. And he's going to take legal action against a guy named David Sweeney, who runs an account called Elon's Jet, which tracks the real time track, you know, uh, flying patterns of, of, of Elon Musk's actual jet. And, but isn't there some talk not, about this, actually this public raises, information? Isn't, this I mean, raises so many questions at once. I mean, you know, first of all, one of the criticisms I would have had about the Twitter files is that they included people's emails, and yeah, you know, people yeah. like Jack Dorsey and Yoel Roth, and like, is that not doxing? Why are you doing that? And you know, here, and and then Elon posts this this thing that says, you know, does anyone know this man? And then it's got his license plate. And it's like, can we not settle this offline? Like, like, like one of the lines of Matt Taibbi's first Twitter files tranche was that looking through these files made you aware that this was a technology that had grown in power beyond the scope of what it's or originators like intended or understood how to manage. Right. right and right. I compl- and I think that's right. entirely correct. Yes. And it, you know, leave it to a kind of cultural cl- critic like Matt Taibbi to like sum that up in a bow in a 41 tweet thread. That is very much the story of Twitter, but when I see Elon Musk doing what he's doing, I think the <laughs> the new guy same as the old guy. This well, guy does not know the power that he's dealing with. And he does. This is growing out of his control. He does not know what he's, you know, he is playing fast and loose in ways. And maybe he's panicked. Maybe he's over his head. I don't I, I could come up. Maybe he's maybe this is made up. I have no idea. But I'm telling don't. you the recklessness with which he is conducting himself and the pettiness and some of the the cruelty and stuff like it it has a lot of echoes of the people that he's been criticizing absolutely say what you said it's like it's same as the old right well i will say yesterday morning when i got up and saw or it was two mornings ago i don't remember um that he had banned 
four or five or six uh, different journalists that had been nine journalists uh, that had been reporting on both the Elon Jet thing and and other things that he had he had suspended. I don't think banned. He had suspended them, and it seemed pretty petty. Now I I I wrote to you or texted you and said like, is this you know pure pettiness and vindictiveness? Have these people maybe been overshooting in terms of their criticism of Musk, which we've seen for a very long time? And, you know, and that's why they got banned. But one question that the first thing I thought was, how do Taibbi and Barry Weiss respond to this? Okay, they've been trying to be in the trenches exposing interesting stuff that, that we were all fascinated with that that may be important. And I really believe, well, I know that they're doing this in good faith, right? I, I, I believe that. And now all of a sudden, he's yeah. done the thing that he's been, you know, absolutely complained about. I really wondered what was going to happen. And I was quite proud of how my friend Barry Weiss responded yesterday. Yeah which was saying, you know, <laughs> this sort of looks, I don't, I don't have it in front of me exactly what she wrote, but we'll link to the tweets. She basically was questioning. It's like, you know, you, you said you were going to do these things. This sure looks like something else. And then because it's Twitter and we do everything in public, he responded to her and basically said, okay, what if it was your family and your child that was being followed, which is very germane because Barry and Nellie have a three-month-old. Um, and she responded again with a very, very level head and said, I absolutely understand that. But what I would have done is I would have laid down some, here's how it's going to work moving forward. And if you, if you do not obey this, then you are going to sus- be suspended. You do not shoot from the hip randomly. I thought she came out looking quite uh well what did you what yeah. did you think sarah oh yeah i agree i think she seemed eloquent and reserved and reserved meaning just sort of like like her tone was calm she's careful and, um you know it it i thought it was a it was a class act response but you know this didn't keep a lot of people in my in my timeline from cackling all afternoon that that they were in a the barry barry weiss and elon musk were now in a spat ha 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 they're perfect for each other um well isn't that is that just don't how would you feel about yourself if you took pleasure in other people's anxiety oh but i do i mean you know like let me be fair like i i'm pretty sure i do like, what did you say? Anxiety? Other people's yeah, anxiety? People, other people are like, they're, they're anxious. Yeah, they're, they're like, afraid. people are like, I cannot write this book. I'm like, yes, I can't either. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh there's a place for shade and photo. We, we, we know that. Yeah, sometimes, it's, it's, I, it's healthy. It's just over, it's over prescribed on that site. You know, it's, it's, it's too much. The main course is the misery of others. You know, I I don't think it's reasonable to say like, oh, we, we, you know, like we could, I would never feel that way. I'm sure I would feel that way. It's just that, you know, the hope is that maybe we would organize a society where you don't get so many fucking points and so much status for doing that. Right. I, it's so funny. You know how you and I, you know, 
between us, we have written thousands of articles and essays. I, and, and, and every once in a while, you're like, you'll find something on the like, oh man, I wrote that. I don't even remember that. But I think I wrote something called like dining out on the misery of others at one point. I got to go see it. It's not, yeah, it I don't like think it's, you. I think it's also like the title of one of our podcasts. It might be. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Um, I just, I, I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan because there are always so many options. There's always so many options in the way you react to somebody. Um, and I, I think it, um, reveling in their misery is probably not a good habit to get into. I don't, I don't. It just don't, makes me lose, so. lose respect for certain people that I thought were really deep thinkers. And then they're saying things that are really simplistic about very complicated things, but like, but particularly like the gleeful um, disdain for Barry Weiss, who I think has proven herself over and over again to be someone to be reckoned with and like a, like a journalist of real substance and people's refusal to see that or acknowledge that. And um, I just, I just, I lose respect for them. You know, this is why Sam Harris said he left Twitter because he was losing respect for people he knew. He was, he said he was starting to hate strangers he'd never met, but also people that he actually knew and liked. Oh, that's heartbreaking. It's that that second part that is hard. And, and, you know, this is why it's, it's, it's impossible to, to measure the impact of a tweet because 2000 people might like it, but you're not counting the number of people that silently see it and go, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm going to give an absolutely terrible analogy here, but it occurred to me, you know, I, as someone who knows and loves Barry, um, I, I, I no, no one has to believe me here, but they'll probably, our listeners are probably in a similar camp. I mean, it is your loss. This person is just so full of love and ideas and mirth. And um, I mean, you can definitely have conversations with her about what you might have thought about her position on Zionism or what she was Columbia or whatever. But it is the law. It is your loss if you are not, you know, at least interested in a in a in a good faith way. But I my here's my terrible metaphor. Years ago, I was uh, having dinner when my sister in law cooked, and she was a great cook. She'd lived in India. She'd married an Indian. She made awesome Indian food. And there's like, you know, Indian food, there's like 14 different things on the table, all these different little curries and sauces and things. And I'm eating. She's like, well, I see you really like the eggplant. I'm like, no, 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 I don't like eggplant. She's like, well, you could have fooled me. You just ate two helpings. So, you know, I wonder, I'd actually never had eggplant because my mother never, I just had never eaten it, but I just assumed I hated it. And I wonder sometimes if it's that way on Twitter, you just, you just figure you're supposed to hate this person because maybe your crew hates it or you're heard about it. So you're going to hate them. But if you actually try the eggplant, you're going to find it's amazing. Well, in AA, we call this contempt prior to investigation. Ooh, wow. What a terrible way to live. What a terrible yeah. way to like literally like drag this wheelbarrow of contempt around with you. And each new thing you're supposed to have contempt for, you're the one that's that's pulling this stuff around. Just let it go. Sorry, I sound like a like a, a great. A I mean, you know, once here. you get once you get that phrase, you can place it on. You start to see so many places in life that people do it. You know, it's not just about 
alcoholics or alcoholism or anything like that. It's really like this useful tool to start to start seeing the world through like, oh, my God, this whole world is designed for contempt prior to investigation. That's what Twitter is. Don't read the stories. Don't think about like react now. Contempt prior to investigation. Hatred by association. Um, you, you know, know what I think common too? enemy tribalism. You know, we both hate so and so. So let's like each other. It's all this. It's it's all this stuff designed to sort of not ask you to think hard and deep about the things that matter the most, which is why it's a drag. Which is how you also, and I think this just holds true for across the board, you start to build up a callus. If your default is contempt, even if it's like not even a major part of your life, but if you if you sort of like slip into that every time, you you I think lose the ability to to feel the other beautiful thing. Your aperture just closes and closes and closes and closes, right? And you don't even know. You don't even know. And when someone like tries to like present you with like, but look at this interesting, joyous thing, you're like, no, you're an idiot. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. So I think- you know, has Barry, I, uh, sorry, I had a question. No, no go, has, go. Has Barry ever addressed the episode in her college years when she had, she did start some sort of, campaign to get a professor fired. Um, this is a this is a detail that is brought up endlessly on Twitter, that she began her career as someone who cancels people and she continues in that vein. All but right. she keeps positioning herself as a as against call out culture. I will link here's what I know about this. She hasn't I haven't she and I haven't talked about it personally. But yeah. David French, the wonderful David French, um did was the person who defended Barry in that case, I believe. Mm. So oh, like I as a lawyer? Yes, yes, yes. Oh wow. So I there he wrote an essay about this maybe a year and a half ago. It's extremely clear. Uh, and I will put a link to it and let I will let David French speak on this topic either, either than um rather than me because I don't Got I don't it. I don't know the details. I didn't know Barry then. Um I and I also think it's become this sort of uh well, I my opinions are absolutely Teflon coded because she did X. I'm like, okay, but do you really know what X was? David French can explain what X was. So we'll, well, we'll and put also a link she, to that. And also she did X twenty years ago. Like I'm i I'm I'm sorry. This is this is a really messed up thing that we're doing. We're demanding people change and we're refusing to let them change at the same time. Whatever you, know, you did twenty years ago, you're still responsible for it, but change now. So Why? I'm gonna I'll just have a I'll just have a confession right here. When I was fourteen years old, I stole uh, a couple of pairs of panties and some lip gloss from Bloomingdale's. So if anybody here wants to just say from now on, what we're going to Nancy Rommelman, she's not a mother, she's not a writer, she's not a podcast, hasn't done anything of merit. Oh, she may have done a few things for, of merit, but you know what? Fuck her because she's a thief. That's it. That's all you need to know about me. You know now what, you know. though? A thief would say that. <laughs> Sarah, you know what's really like funny, that, Sarah? What? <laughs> Nothing. No, go ahead. I would say that. That's right. I, I'm getting ahead of it. I'm getting ahead of the issue. And anyone who wants to go back to Bloomingdale's and see if my uh, my mugshot is still uh, back up there in the security department. So before we get into our bonus episode, we are, we are going to be not talking about you know, the misery of others. We're going to be talking about the sex lives of others because guys, you should stick around and become a paid subscriber so you can hear about Sarah and I talk about the sex lives of others, including uh, maybe some, uh, I can't even say the word. I hate it so much. The acronym. Come on, Sarah. you can too. Come on. It's two little words. Say, say it. it. Say it. I hate it. I can't. 
Milf <laughs> I, I'll tell the story of when I the, the first time I heard that word when we get in the episode. We'll be talking about that and maybe maybe a little bit about our not our own sex lives, but, but maybe um, before we before we dip out for the bonus, um, Sarah, is there anything else we want to talk about here with Twitter? Because I feel like it's a daily. It is a day. It's like it's kind of like as the world turns, like the old soap opera, you know. As Twitter turns, it's sort of a daily, a daily thing now. You know, there's a there's an operating uh, theory that what Elon Musk is actually trying to do is to kill old media and create Twitter as the new source of media. And I think there probably is a lot to that. Um, I think he might see like a lot of Silicon Valley folks, as the traditional media as part of a 20th century infrastructure, um, you know, it no longer serves us anymore. You know, people forget that the cars, you know, they didn't come around until 1920, but you think of all the 20th century as being, you know, having cars, right? Mm. But the centuries don't really kick off till you're a little bit in them. Mm-hmm. Cars define the 20th century. Well, we know, techn- we suspect technology is going to define the 21st century. And I think Musk wants to put the stake in the heart of old media. I think he wants Twitter to rise as the new media. And I think that is uh, thrilling and scary as hell. So there we go. And we could, we can, if we choose, we can be part of making it better. So. That's what I choose. Or okay. can we? Or can we? Um, okay, everyone. We'll see you in the bonus. See you in a little bit, Sarah Hepla. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.